There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alina, as always, is excited today. Why are you excited, Alina? Today is World War II Day and we have with us Peter Caddick Adams, who is a historian, author, a former military man and a broadcaster. You may know some of his books like Monty and Rommel, Parallel Lives, Snow and Steel, Battle of the Bulge, or his most recent publication, Sand and Steel, A New History of D-Day. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Yeah, because you came on before to talk about Churchill with us when we threw that program together to say, Oi, stop having a go and use some context when that all kicked off. Um, but you haven't actually had your own episode yet, have you? I haven't, no. I snuck in. It was a D-Day, um, dis- uh, it was a VE Day discussion. Oh, we, we did that as well. Summer. Yes, we did the VE Day celebration. And it was at such short notice that I never got a cartoon. So I'm really pleased to be doing this because I've now got my own cartoon. You so have got you your own cartoon. I've sent it Love to you already so you can have a look. I'm waiting for someone to kick off because you're in a German uniform, but we haven't put any insignia on it. It's harmless. You're just wearing a nice neat hat and coat. Yeah, I, I, I could be a porter for a, a well-known London hotel or a cabbie somewhere. So, exactly. Well, it doesn't have to be a German field marshal. No, but there is a reason your clothes may resemble a German field marshal, and that's because you're here to tell us who was Erwin Rommel. Do you want to start at the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I think probably it's fair to say let's let, let's start at what we immediately associate with the man. There is this uh, iconic German general um, who even Winston Churchill um, praises in the House of Commons. We have, may I say, across the hammock of war, a daring and skillful opponent. Oh, God, it's like granddad's in the room. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, brilliant. And uh, if you are Rommel bashing, as we were meant to be doing with the Eighth Army in the middle of the Second World War, and your prime minister comes on and sort of says that sort of thing, it rather elevates this man to sort of cult superhero status. Um, and then a, a war, uh, a, one of those wonderful black and white movies after the um, Second World War was over, um, Rommel the Desert Fox with James Mason, just elevates him. And of course, he's then cast as a sort of anti-Hitler hero. We won't, we, we won't um, uh, wind forward too much. But um, what we've got, therefore, is, is someone who in his lifetime had celebrity status, after his death, went to super celebrity status through Hollywood. Um, and that produced a slew of books that were bestsellers in their time. Um, and now we are, of course, re-examining um, him, and that's produced even more books. Um, and, of course, he, he just delivered the goods on the battlefield when the Germans needed it. 
Um, and I think what's what's probably very special is um, his battles were um, compartmentalized and, and they weren't the norm of, of, of those fought by most German generals. So that's why we have this sort of figure who rises up and all you have to do is look at the, the cap and the goggles and the tartan scarf. And, you know, there's a man who understands branding in a very 21st century way that, that absolutely none of his other German comrades in the Second World War did. He just, you know, he's a figurehead. He's a, an image. Um, and you'd only have to draw a, a cap with a pair of goggles and ask anyone with any vague knowledge of military history, who's this? And they would say Rommel straight away. Well, this is leading on to my next point, exactly what you just said there. You know, we know who he is, especially during the Second World War. But what do we know about his early life and the start of his career? Well, that's a really good question. And and the, the first observation I would make is that, is that if you think about it, every uh, senior commander in the Second World War has been a junior commander in the First World War. Um, and we forget that that the second world war is simply part of this career path and they've already been through the maelstrom of a world war um first time round and and actually the first world war is far more important for these people that generation um anyone born in the 1880s 1890s um than we realize because that's where they learn to lead and command and that's that will play out in the second world war they're not reacting to um how the british or the uh, whoever um, has opposed them in 1940 or 1940. Those are skills, those are traits, um, uh, those are trends and patterns that they have already developed doing it the first time round between 1914 and 1918. So we do know a lot about Rommel um, because he wrote a book. Uh, and again, it's always worth uh, writing your own book um, if, you, uh, if you want to gain that super celebrity status. And again, Rommel's very unusual. Um, because most of his generation don't write their war memoirs. Uh, but Rommel writes his First World War memoirs. It's a book called Infantry Attacks, which comes out in the late 1930s, when he's a, a, an instructor, instructing junior officers much younger than him. And he uses the book as a handbook. Um, so you have to be careful with Rommel's First World War memoirs. They are written as, well, I was presented with this difficult situation. I did X, Y, and Z. You can use that as a template because I'm a brilliant leader. So there's a, you know, I'm slightly sort of cynical uh, about that. But essentially, he has a very unusual war. So uh, Rommel comes from a, a background of teachers uh, in Württemberg, so uh, southwest uh, Germany. Um, and it, he is nothing like a Prussian. So he's not a von. He's not an aristocrat. He doesn't come from anywhere near Berlin or Prussia or the areas where you traditionally associate um, German uh, high commanders coming from um, and he's just a hard worker and has a natural talent for for, um, for being in the military uh, he joined joins the, the German army in 1908 so quite a bit before the first world war and he's just a good jun junior officer leader of men and what happens is the first world war happens to him and it, it, it sends him off to all sorts of campaigns uh, he's in the Vosges mountains in 1914-1915 um, and then he gets sidelined to all sorts of obscure little campaigns that we forget about away from the Western Front. So he's fighting in Romania against the Romanians who are, are then British allies. Oh, that would have lasted about five minutes. Exactly. I mean, it all, <laughs> all collapses for it. But yeah. he, you know, he's at the forefront of the German stroke Austrian um, attacks on Romania, which are 
very good. But because he's got this freedom of maneuver in a minor theater, and he has quite a lot of uh, men under his command, many of whom are Hungarians, not Germans, and some Austrians too, um, he learns to command a sort of vast babble of uh, uh, men from different race, uh, different nations. Um, uh, in a in a theater whereas even as a junior officer you actually have far more impact because there are fewer men and um the terrain isn't all trenches it's it's leaping around and seizing hills uh, and you're left a lot with your own initiative to come up with surprise maneuvers uh, and that's what he does uh, and then in 1917 um the germans uh stiffen the austrians and launch a surprise uh, attack against the italians who we often forget were uh, British allies uh, and uh, the German attack uh, is, uh, or the, the battle is known as the Battle of Caporetto uh, in uh, October 1917, complete surprise to the allies. Um, the, the front has been live, but no one's realized that the Germans have sort of arrived, reinvigorated the, the Austrian forces, come up with a superb plan of attack and right in the vanguard um, is, uh, is Mr. Erwin Rommel, or should I say Major, um, leaping across these uh, what is now Slovenia, Slovene mountains um, in the sort of north uh, east corner of Italy um, and just wiping everything uh, away in front of him. Uh, and he goes from the sort of um, the Austrian straight Slovene border all the way to the river Piave, um, which is over 50 miles in about three weeks. And he, I mean, you know, when do we think of the Western Front? and gains and manoeuvres of yards and inches. Um, and you've got Italy, where you've, you've got this huge progress. Uh, it, it, it really is an important um, uh, campaign to study. Um, and you can see why uh, someone who's used to sweeping across such di distances, coming up with he where he's unexpected, manoeuvring behind the Italians, um, you know, just all the hallmarks there of, of, of Blitzkrieg as we will know it in 1940. But it's largely because he's left to his own devices. He's out there in the in front. There aren't trenches to constrain him. He's given a huge amount of, of personal initiative uh, and off he goes uh, and leaves the rest of the G Austrian and German forces behind him completely standing. But Alf Rommel goes way into the distance. Um, uh, is first to capture several important mountain peaks uh, and on the, the river Piave um, at uh, a, a town called Longarone, uh, he comes across lots of Italians far behind the line who, who A, don't expect him, uh, and B, he's, he's vastly outnumbered by them, something like two and a half Italian divisions, so you know, way in excess of 10, 15, 20,000 men. Uh, and Rommel appears with about 50 um, and sort of says, uh, right, well, you better surrender to me because uh, the rest of the German army are just behind me. So um, you don't all want to die, do you? So you don't need a fight. Come on, surrender. And they do. And of course, there's only 50. So he locks up the officers in the castle and, and everyone else sort of throws down their arms. Uh, and eventually, as, as a result of all of that and, and continuous fighting, award of the Iron Cross first class, award of the Iron Cross second class for that in December 1917, Rommel is awarded the Paula Merit. So he goes to the, the, the hall of Valhalla, um, as it were. Uh, he's, he's now one of the great German uh, junior commanders because he's got the supreme award uh, that come, came from the Kaiser. Um, and uh, you know, it's the equivalent of the uh, Medal of Honor or, or, or a Victoria Cross. Um, and it, it, it underlines just how clever and able a tactical commander he is. Uh, 
but what happens in 1918? Well, we, we, we we know the strategic story of the German surrender. Rommel is taken out of the line because he's clearly a very good soldier, but he's used up his nine lives and he's been seriously wounded before in 1914. So he's taken away, given a staff job. So when the German surrender happens, he is behind a desk, chimping and wishing he was at the front with his soldiers. But had he been, he would almost certainly have been killed mm. because he would have been out there at the front taking risks um, and... Uh, you know, he's he's already shown that he's he's the guy who wants to be right at the front with all his men. Uh, and the Western Front is arguably more dangerous in 1918 than it has been in any previous year. Um, and Bromel, because his superiors just think, right, here's, here's a guy we need to keep up our sleeves. He's already proved his worth. Uh, Rommel ends up doing a staff officer's job, which he absolutely hates. And this is going to have payback for him later on. Because what... When all the opportunities for career advancement later on in the interwar period come his way and they, that his seniors and mentors say, right, right, Erwin, you need to go to staff college. You need to do this staff job. He keeps, ah, no, no, I've done staff work. I hate it. I know I don't like it. I absolutely don't want to go to staff college. Um, I want to be leading and commanding and training men, not pushing paper. Um, which means in the Second World War, he'll be the only German general without a Kriegs Academy stamp. And that is, you know, that, that, that's the gilt edge, your passport to higher command. Um, but as we will see, um, he manages to, to circumvent that. But it is a hindrance uh, in his interwar um, career right up until that point. So that's Rommel in the First World War, really unusual um, First World War. It, it, it's not like anyone else's. Um, and he shines in these minor theatres which bring him to people's attention. But what we also know is he's this massive self-publicist. Um, I just got back from um, the Piave front, actually, just before second lockdown. And we were on Monte Tumba, which is famous uh, because it's Rommel's Hill, because yeah. he seized it. Uh, and from there you can stand and you literally see, you can say, over that mountain over there is Vienna. And over that mountain over there is budapest and it's just the the view is amazing and the importance strategic importance of it is is i thoroughly recommend anyone who wants to get their head around a bit of um the first world war um and doesn't want to to tread the old ground of the western front to go uh, and and just have a look at that campaign because um there's so much of the first world war that's still there um, yep. You can follow the routes. It's all very well mapped. It's it's pretty remote in terms of of tourists, but it's it's spectacular. It's lovely so to much visit. to see as well. There's it's brilliant um, museums and things and memorial. there's lots of museums as you say. And yeah. and the trench lines are there in the in the lower slopes. And of course in the higher slopes it's all rock. But they built bunkers, and you can go into them and get these wonderful views. Uh, and in some cases, you know, the barbed wire is still there, the shrapnel and the cape cartridge yep. cases. All and you get all these insights it. into what this campaign was like. So I'm fascinated by it. I mm. really am. And it, 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 it's more fascinating when you realise you're actually treading in the, uh, the, the boot prints of, uh, of someone who's about to be famous, but is, isn't um, in, in 1918, uh, 1917, 1918. Well, I'm glad you've been there and you've, you've witnessed it for yourself. Yeah, um, I 
killed my drone on Monty Tumba as well, almost. No. Uh, well, yeah, well, somebody who shall remain nameless but is called Merrin was on lookout duty and a tree mm. got in the way and he vanished and then the homing thing wasn't working. So we've seen quite a lot of that hill because we had to scour it looking for the drone. Uh, but we found him, we found Stan uh, and we rescued him and he's none the worse off for it. I know but, yeah, Merrin, Rommel I almost took out my drone. Okay. I know Merrin, but she's never <laughs> revealed that she's a drone killer as well. She is a drone killer, but I forgive her. <laughs> so, we talked about his early life, we talked about World War One. Did he struggle, like many others, after World War One, like mentally? So, I think, I think there are two things going on if we look back at Rommel's First World War. Um, he has a time to decompress in that staff job for a year, so it's not a sudden change from uh, war to peace. Um, his private life had been turbulent because he got engaged to the lady he um, eventually marries, Lucy Rommel. Um, but he, that he had a tempestuous relationship just before the First World War um, uh, with someone else, uh, Volberger Stemmer, um, who comes from a low background. And they clearly um, had this passionate affair and it results in the birth of a daughter. And Rommel is about to resign from the army. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, his chosen career path and go off and, uh, and live with this young lady who earns a, li- a living as a seamstress. So Rommel's parents were scandalised, as were um, uh, his uh, fiancés. Um, uh, and so what's fascinating is, is that Rommel was about to throw everything away and we wouldn't have seen this sort of great commanding jet he'd have just been sucked up into conscription at some stage in the first world war um but he probably wouldn't have been given the opportunities he had staying in because he's a professional army officer what we've got to remember is is that um uh, germany is, is a conscript army and most of the people who fight in it are butchers bakers and candlestick makers get sucked in to fight their war and then if they survive go back to their less civilian jobs but rommel's a professional army officer um, and that really matters because at the end of the First World War, the German army is going to be, you know, reduced to the size of 100,000 men. Um, uh, and the prospects for someone like Rommel, who's not an aristocrat, not well connected, aren't necessarily very good. But he's won a high decoration. So that, that keeps him um, quids in, keeps him in the, the, uh, the, the post-war German army. Um, but two things. So mentally, where does that leave him? Um, clearly, he's lost a lot of friends. And I think there's a survivor's guilt complex that uh, accompanies those professional officers who've been quite junior in the First World War but have survived and probably done quite well. Um, and they wander through the rest of their life thinking, why me? Um, and you see that with a lot of Second World War commanders because they've all, they've all done that. Um, uh, and so I think there's, there's, there's a, a big load of sorting out to do in the, the 1920s. Um, and of course, that's when all the, you know, the political um, malarkey is going on in Germany. And I'm not saying that lightly, but the German officers don't really know what to do and who to back. Um, some go down the route of Freikorps and supporting um, the, uh, the, the sort of extreme right against the extreme left. Um, Rommel doesn't really get politics. I don't think he ever does. Um, and so he sort of stays aloof from that. We don't see any evidence of him um, going into the Freikorps. Um, where a lot of the SS eventually uh, arrive from. Um, so I think that's when he's making sense of what the First World War was all about um, uh, uh, and what it means to him. And he just, he's, he's just grateful to be kept in the Reichswehr, the post-First World War German army, um, training men, because that's what he's, he likes doing. He's found he's really good at it. 
Um, and he's just grateful for a career, frankly, a, a government, well-paid government career in the 1920s with all that inflation and, and unemployment uh, uh, and everything else. Um, and he keeps his head down and really ignores politics uh, altogether. Um, so he's unlike, again, a lot of other German generals. Um, and, and I think, you know, his, his approach to, to the military and warfare and training is monk-like. He doesn't really look at the politics, doesn't look at international affairs. He is just a soldier, soldier all the way through. Um, and that's what his life um, revolves around. Um, so I think that's those are his sort of reflections on on, on the First World War. But, you know, the, we all say, well, the poor, poor old German army shrinks to the size of 100,000 men, how they possibly cope. And only 8,000 of those, less than that, I think, are officers. Well, let's pause and just consider that the British army today is is not even that. Um, and OK, today is all about you know capability. But um, 100,000 men is quite a lot. It's not a lot compared with the, the sort of armies Germany had been fielding and conscript armies at that. Um, but of course, by today's standards, it's massive. Uh, and by p- historical standards, it's absolutely tiny. So uh, it, when we talk about the 100,000 um, strong army, um, it's, it's a creature of its day. But at the end of the day, whatever size it is, um, it's, it's what Rommel wants to be a part of, and he's really grateful for, for, for that to happen. And thereafter, in the interwar period, his career path follows exactly what you'd expect. Um, he's been, uh, although he's commanded um, a battalion that grows to the size of a brigade in the First World War. So, you know, he's carried the rank of a sort of colonel or a brigadier general. Um, everybody slides back down the scale to commanding smaller units and, and having lesser rank. So Rommel is a, 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 a sort of captain um, in the post-war army, works his way up to commanding a company, a major. Uh, he then commands a battalion, the Württemberg Ski Battalion. Um, uh, and essentially, I think one of the, the traits that now comes out about Rommel is that he is incredibly fit. He is fit in an athletic sense of going out for runs and skiing and swimming. Um, and he is the sort of military, he has the military fitness that we would associate the special forces today. He would be in line for SAS training. Now, that's really unusual in the German army of the day or any other day. Uh, officers are all about leading, um, but not about taking exercises. Um, and they are fat knackers in a lot of cases in a lot of armies. So Rommel is, is pretty unique in his approach to physical fitness. And he demands the same of his officers uh, and men, which is, is all great, but it's really unusual. But that's going to pay dividends in the Second World War when everybody gets the fact that actually fitness um, in uh, a physical sense gives you mental alertness and in the extremes of of, uh, of combat like the western desert or normandy actually that fitness really pays off and everybody needs it so rommel is practicing this personally uh, especially through the 1920s 1930s at a time when that's really unusual and i think that's a point that many people miss let's fast forward a little bit to september 1939 in the invasion of poland where was he and what was he doing? Okay, so if we look at Rommel in September 1939, he has got a really unusual job. He's commanding Hitler's bodyguard battalion. 
Um, so there is, uh, the, there are the Leibstandarte, the SS, who, who provide his intimate staff uh, and personal protection. But wherever he travels, there's a, a German army battalion um, who provide the, the close uh, protection. Um, so when Hitler uh, observes the invasion of Poland, he's on a military train. Um, and the people manning it, manning the, um, the weapons uh, and the intimate support where, wherever it goes, uh, are lodged on the train um, and who will protect him when he's visiting the troops, it is uh, Rommel. And he's advanced the rank of uh, General Mayor. Um, and in the German army, that isn't a major general, it's a brigadier, a one-star uh, position, because of the, the seniority that that, that that requires. You are close to Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer. Um, and what's happened is he, he's had several high-profile jobs in the, the uh, interwar years, commanding staff colleges. Um, he's asked to provide close protection for Hitler when Hitler goes into Austria and Prague just before the Second World War. And Hitler remembers that and then uh, sort of says, right, well, I quite like this young man um, for my uh, bodyguard sort of battalion commander. Why? Well, Rommel has written his book, Infantry Tactics, and he makes sure Hitler gets a copy and Hitler reads it. So Rommel becomes a known name to Hitler. And then from the two times when he's commanded his personal bodyguard, he becomes a face. And, and uh, you, you've had many conversations with historians of the Third Reich, um, Roger Morehouse, and, uh, all the rest, who will tell you that, that you know, the Third Reich is, is a load of sort of competing people, competing organisations. And the closer you are to, to Hitler, the more um, recognition you'll get. Uh, um, everybody wants to be in Hitler's inner circle because he will give them the plum jobs um, or, or their organisations will get recognised. Uh, and so too with the, the German army uh, and all the German armed forces. So Rommel has achieved almost the impossible of getting incredibly close to Hitler uh, and commanding his bodyguard during the Polish campaign, being on Hitler's train. He has lunch with him every day. I mean, you know, people do that right on for that. It's like, you know, being invited to the cabinet table and you, you're hobnobbing with the, the cabinet or, you know, whatever the modern equivalent would be. Um, uh, and Rommel is chimping all the way through the Polish campaign because, you know, at heart, he's not a heart staff officer. He, all the time, people say he, he was back on the River Piave in 1917 uh, winning his Paul Emerit, and that's what he wants. And he sees the Polish campaign, uh, wants to be part of it, can't be because he's got this really prestigious job. But at some stage between the end of the Polish campaign um, and the beginning of 1940, a conversation would have happened between Hitler and Rommel, and Hitler would have said, well, you know, do you want to carry on commanding my bodyguard? And, and Rommel would have said, you know, my Fuhrer, this is a huge honour. Uh, but you realise I'm a soldier and I, I, I would love to be at the front and um, I'm ready for a division now. Um, and I see the way these newfangled panzer divisions have done quite well in Poland. And I, quite, I wouldn't mind one of those, were one of those to come my way. Uh, and of course, Hitler is the great enabler. Rommel has sowed the seed. Uh, and so the 7th Panzer Division, which should have had another German general uh, put into command, who was already slated to command it. Uh, and on Valentine's Day, 14th of February 1940, 
Rommel, who's never had any experience of tanks at all, is shoehorned in to command this division, which was going to be commanded by someone else. Causes great resentment in the division and throughout the rest of the army. So he's by no means a popular choice because he's seen very much as Hitler's stooge and possibly Hitler's spy. Um, and that brings us to the French campaign in 1940. It does. Um do you think he's a war criminal after what happened in France? And can you tell us about the incident? Yeah, so R- Rommel basically follows his instinct, works out how to, to lead tanks, um, uh, is, is part of this you know, spectacular breakthrough um, across the, the River Meuse um, in 1940. And within a few weeks, he's, he's reached the Channel Coast. Um, and a few days into the campaign, he's on his command tank um, and... Uh, they see a really hostile French lieutenant colonel by the roadside, uh, and uh, this this chap has got a gun, um, and he's disarmed, and uh, he's told to come up onto Rommel's tank because he clearly, this Frenchman, will cause trouble behind the lines if he's left, and there's no one else to sort of uh, take control of him, uh, and they don't want him running around behind the lines um, rousing Frenchmen to attack the Germans. So Rommel says, you know, come up on my tank now, I need you here. Um, and the, the Frenchman refuses three times. And as Rommel writes in his own memoirs, the Rommel diaries that come out after the Second World War, there was nothing for it, but we had to shoot him. So there are several things that come out here. That, that's a war crime. The guy is unarmed. Uh, he's given three warnings, refuses to comply. Um, now, Rommel doesn't pull the trigger there's no implication that he does but he's present and he orders the act so that to me is an immoral act um and i think by the standards of today that is war criminality whether under the under german military codes or french military codes at the time um that uh, as illegal is is a moot point but actually i don't think it it, it it's that um uh, I, I think it's worth saying, you know, we have to look back at, at, at people today, um, at, at their moral makeup, um, and that's wrong. And I was really surprised to read that because the, the worrying aspect of this is Rommel writes it in his memoirs. These are a series of, of memoirs drafted. He never publishes them, They're edited and put together after the Second World War. But Rommel is almost boasting about this. And that's the bit that sticks in the craw. Um, there's an immoral act, but he's actually, he, he, he's not looking back and regretting it. He's saying, this is what we did. Uh, and, and I instigated this. Um, so he's almost drawn attention to it. Um, and that's Rommel, I think, having signed up to the new regime, the Third Reich, with its standards of disregarding human life. Uh, and if you're an opponent, then you are of much lower status. You're not the, the worthy uh, opponent necessarily. And, and now, you know, we look back, since I, I, uh, I wrote my Rommel uh, and Monty biography, there's more evidence coming out. The 7th Panzer Division weren't exactly kind to the African French uh, uh, soldiers that they captured along their route march, and several of these seem to have been um, massacred. Now, there's... there's this is anecdotal evidence, there's not documentary evidence, there's nothing in the files, but the, the French certainly are indicating um, that along the route of 7th Panzer Division, um, there were 
uh, massacres, particularly of uh, indigenous sort of colonial troops. I'd say that's not unique, and, and a lot of other French uh, troops suffered in the same way at the hands of almost every German division. Um, so this is the standards with which the Germans went to war in 1940. It is, but, um, but, it yeah, is systematic, isn't it, of their ideolo- ideology that um, yeah, I, black people are inferior and they behave horribly as such. And I think that's the important point to make. So I'm not singling out Rommel as a war criminal, but I'm not excluding him. Um, and I felt it was important to make the point that he, like everyone else, had signed up to this new code of war of the Third Reich, which is ghastly and abhorrent. Yeah, um, and you're actually doing no justice to black history if you don't put it in the proper context, because you need to. Exactly. And, and you know, we would look back and, and say, A, it's immoral, but B, it's completely unnecessary. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I held him up to such a high regard for such a long time. You know, Rommel, this amazing general, this guy, he almost, almost godlike. And then I read this and I kind of thought, I started self-doubting myself. Yeah, he is a Nazi. He's a, I think he's a fellow traveller because he's not a politician. He don't, I, mm. and I, you know, it's a point I made earlier. He doesn't really ever get or follow international affairs or even German politics. Interesting fact of uh, the, the, the German army were always meant to be a, a separate and apart from politics and weren't allowed to vote, but like the House of Lords in this country. Um, so they didn't vote in elections. Um, and that was deliberately designed to keep them away from the politics of, of, of Germany. So um, he didn't have a view. But of course, you know, Hitler is the man in power. Rommel is ambitious. Um, he, you know, he's had several top jobs. He's more than happy to sign up to whatever Hitler will give him and, and enables that. So he makes sure Hitler has a copy of his book, as I said. Um, that, that's simply a means to sort of triggering and enabling Rommel's career. So he's quite happy to ride the tiger. That's the point. And if that qualifies as being a Nazi in 1940, then 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 so be it. Um, uh, and you know the tiger is very very kind to him, um, and he he does what he does very well, which is his command, his Panzer division. It takes more territory, destroys more tanks, captures more prisoners than any other unit in in 1940. Um, Hitler is watching this. Um, his old you know buddy that he used to have lunch with. So Rommel gets one of the first Knights Crosses, uh, the, the, in fact, the first Knights Cross of the French campaign. Um, so, and he becomes one of these icons. Now, there's something else that's going on here, which is that Joseph Goebbels, Minister for Propaganda and Enlightenment, sees that Rommel is everything that a good Nazi should be. Not an aristocrat background, good, able soldier, coming from quite humble origins, did well in the First World War. He's everything that he, Goebbels thinks national socialists should be. Um, so there's a bit of encouragement here, uh, again, I think, for, for, for Rommel. And Goebbels says, right, I want to attach a propaganda company to your division for the French 1940 campaign, uh, and they'll record everything that's going on. Uh, and that's why Rommel gets so, some of the profile he does. Um, the, these guys are, are on his tanks, filming all the manoeuvres, sending reports back. So, of course, you know, in during the campaign and certainly at the end of it, um, when the German population 
look back on who were the names who made the German the German invasion of, of France happen uh, and made the, the French defeat sort of all the more uh, impressive. Rommel is one of the names that comes out of the hat because he's there in the newsreels and he's there in the war reports. Um, and that's because Goebbels asked and Rommel accepted. And Rommel understands that if you use uh, war correspondence and the press, it can only help you. And that's now going to create a bit of jealousy with his colleagues who are a little more old fashioned and don't think, you know, that's really a proper way of conducting and, and, and managing your career. But this is the new regime. So Rommel has signed up to, to, to using the Nazi machine, to using Hitler, to using Nazi propaganda. And of course, that's going to make him sort of almost indistinguishable from, from everything else um, that the Third Reich uh, is associated with. And we forget that at, at the time. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Rommel is probably most well known during the Africa campaign. So can you tell us what actually happens there? Rommel is extraordinarily lucky. Um, and again, he's kicking his heels. French campaign is over um, by June 1940. Uh, and Rommel is kicking his heels. He's done really well um, in the campaign. Um, he makes a movie about uh, how it happened, propaganda movie. It's, it's almost a, a sort of training film. Um, and he wants to be part of the next big adventure, which is clearly the invasion of Russia. Um, but what's happened in the meantime is in November 1940, uh, Mussolini has attacked the British in North Africa um, from Libya, which is an Italian stronghold, Italian colony, they, they uh, uh, Italian forces head over the border, attack the Brits in in Egypt, and there's actually been an, a, a, an Italian campaign to the south of Egypt in um, uh, Ethiopia as well. Uh, and the Brits are feeling beleaguered. They counterattack, catch the uh, Italians by surprise, and it all of a sudden starts to go wrong for Mussolini. Hitler will bail out his Italian chum Mussolini by sending a small number of German troops to North Africa to bail out um, his Italian chum. And uh, he's casting around for a commander uh, and he lights on his old pal, Erwin Rommel, who was given pretty much two divisions, so not very much at all, um, to go to North Africa uh, and to help uh, and liaise with the Italian forces. So Rommel arrives in February 1941 and by now, he, he understands how propaganda works. He understands that his career uh, will go far if he can do spectacular things uh, and, um, and delight Hitler. 
So he arrives in North Africa. Rommel being Rommel is told to sort of build up his forces, um, not do anything rash. And he does exactly the opposite. Uh, now, we have to couple this with, with British code breaking. And we're starting at this stage to get our, our heads around the Enigma encoding machine. Um, and so we understand Hitler's uh, or the, the German uh, war ministry's instructions to Rommel, which is go to North Africa. Um, don't do anything stupid. Um, what code breaking doesn't give you is an insight into Rommel's brain, which is right. I'm going to go here. I'm going to ignore all the orders I've given. And I'm going to do my own thing. So he arrives within days. Uh, he's out doing what he would call a reconnaissance in force, um, but is essentially attacking the Brits. And uh, within a short space of time, the British are pushed right back um, uh, and Rommel is making all the waves. And that continues all the way through 1941 uh, and into 1942. So the Brits are wrong footed because we, we we're listening and understanding Rommel with the Brits are wrong footed because we are uh, deciphering Rommel's orders, but Rommel is not obeying them. And all the more, he's getting more and more forces. Now, the time at which this is happening is really important. In May 1941, Hitler invades Yugoslavia, then Greece, then Crete. But between February and May 1941, there's nothing else happening in the German war machine. They're not invading anywhere. Um, they're merely occupying and it's not dramatic news. So within that period, Rommel is the only game in town and he makes the most of it. He's fully aware. He's the man in all the newsreels, in all the propaganda magazines. It's Rommel, Rommel, Rommel. Um, come to June, 22nd of June, we know that that's when the invasion of, of Russia begins. Rommel is sort of knocked off the um, front pages of everywhere in the German Reich. Um, but he then starts to compete because uh, it, it's good propaganda to show that the Germans are suddenly making gains all over the world, deep into Russia, but also deep into North Africa. And Rommel uh, is very much the beneficiary of that. Um, and how do you bring that campaign to life? It's really difficult because there aren't any towns or cities. It's just a desert waste. So the camera and the newspapers focus on individual personalities. And they've already already realized that Rommel is really good copy from the French campaign. So they build on that and Rommel himself builds on that. Uh, and so he makes sure that the, the German uh, propaganda officials are always close to him. He gives them a lot of time. Um, there's also a war artist who goes out there um, and he uh, he paints pictures of Rommel, which are turned into little postcards. Uh, and Rommel uh, and there's lovely reports um, from his staff officers who work with him. Uh, there's a man called uh, Schmidt, uh, who's one of his staff officers, writes a lovely little memoir after the Second World War, South African, called With Rommel in the Desert. And he records Rommel late at night bending over his uh, his table, um, signing his name on endless uh, letters of adulation from admirers throughout Germany uh, and signing postcards. And there isn't a machine that does this. This is Rommel doing it by hand. Uh, you know, and that tells us he's very much part of this sort of celebrity machine um, that, you know, is, is what the Third Reich is built on. It is a you know propaganda edifice. But Rommel is fully signed up to being part of that. Um, and part of his magic is he, he keeps beating the British. Uh, and why? Because the British 
try and work out what he's doing, but he, he's disobeying his own orders. There's another aspect to this, which is the uh, American liaison officer in Cairo, um, who is uh, intimately aware of all the British plans, a colonel called Bonner Fellers. Um, whenever he's told what the British are going to do, um, uh, writes this down and sends it back to Washington, D.C. as a, as a transcript of, of what's going on. And the Germans have broken that code. So they have got insights into our plans. We've got insights into their plans, but Rommel disobeys them. Uh, and Rommel also has a, a, an intercept company of radio uh, interceptors, which is a, a sort of group of about 100 people who are near the front. Um, and they are all British English speakers. They worked as waiters in London or in New York before the Second World War. Um, and they're all signals experts and they range in on British communications uh, and they break all the low level tactical codes. And so Rommel is also fed tactical level intelligence from the front, strategic level intelligence from breaking the British code. Plus, he's disobeying his own orders from Berlin. And all of that means that Rommel is able to outwit his opponents. And that's why he sees off a, su a succession of British generals who, who are unaware of these advantages. So to Churchill uh, and the British high command, it seems that Rommel is incredibly lucky, but there is more to his luck um, than, than, than mere luck. And that's partly what's going on. So uh, Field Marshal Earl Wavell uh, is in charge of the British initially. Um, he would have probably bested Rommel, but at a crucial moment in 1941, when he's got enough forces to take Rommel on, Churchill says, right, well, the Germans are invading Greece. Um, I want you, uh, Archibald Wavell, to divide your forces uh, in North Africa. And I, I want you to send half, you know, essentially half the Eighth Army uh, to um, uh, to Greece. Um, and they're then pushed back to Crete. So just when the British could have done one campaign well, they're divided in two and they do both campaigns pretty poorly, Greece and Crete and North Africa. And that's Churchill's interference. Um, but after Wavell comes uh, Richard O'Connor. Um, after him comes um, uh, General uh, Cunningham, whose brother is in charge of the Mediterranean fleet. Um, uh, and after him comes Auchinleck. And a whole series of um, commanders of the British forces in North Africa don't seem to be able to make headway against Rommel. But that's because he, he's holding all the cards. He's using his resources well. He's got this intercept company. He's got strategic intelligence. So you wouldn't be surprised. Um, so does that make him a great general? Does, does that detract from anything? No, um, I think he's uh, a, an instinctive leader. Um, but this is where we start to start unpick Rommel's achievements. He is smart, though. You, you've got to hand him that. Rommel is incredibly smart and he thinks with a frontline soldier's cunning. Um, so if you what if you like, I'm not trying to assassinate uh, Rommel per se, but I'm just trying to say there's more behind uh, the, the luck and the legend than we we would first sort of think about. Um, so this is where Rommel's lack of staff training kicks in and i said that he, he he hates being a staff officer didn't like it in the last year of the first world hasn't been to staff college and at staff college what do you learn you learn how to handle a division you learn how to handle a corps and an army uh, and you learn that they need huge logistics supplies you need to um, uh, 
you, you need really good intelligence. Um, you need good training. You need good resources. Uh, and if you put all of this together um, uh, in sequence uh, and coordinate everything else, you, you can run a big campaign. So Rommel has now been taken from his comfort zone is probably, you know, running a, um, a, a brigade or a division, which he did really well in France in 1940. And he's now running uh, a campaign with a corps, which will eventually be an army. Um, so two divisions minimum make a corps. He's got that. He eventually gets more. Then he takes command effectively of some of the Italian forces. And eventually his, his command is upgraded to um, Panzer Army Africa. So he's got his own army. And, and loosely, we talk about the Africa Corps, which is essentially all the German forces commanded by Rommel at any one stage. So this is a pretty big responsibility for which he's had no professional training. So you would normally then rely on your, your, your professional advisors, chief of staff, the staff officers who have been to staff college. They make sense of the logistics of the supply of ammunition or petrol or water, vital, of course, in North Africa. Um, and Rommel, A, doesn't get the logistics, doesn't understand it, doesn't think it's really important. And instead of leaving others to go on and do that, Rommel is always at the front, commanding his soldiers where he feels happy. Um, and leaving his staff behind to pick up the pieces. But then sometimes he's out of contact. So they have to end up commanding the Africa Corps as well. So he doesn't also understand how to delegate and use his staff, which is what he would have learned at a staff college. So this is all iconic stuff. Rommel's men love him. He turns up unexpectedly. He has this little personal play, uh, spotter plane. Uh, that uh, he flies around the front with, with a, a pilot, lands unexpectedly. I mean, if you're you're um, pottering around uh, in the desert and this this plane flies over you and then drops a message, um, what are you doing? You should be, you know, 50 miles further west. You're you're going too slowly. Buddy hell, that's the general over over overhead watching me, uh, and I'm going to get it in the neck. I mean, he he just materializes all over all over the front, but that's not a general's job. General's job is, is, you know, the campaigning. And, and what Rommel does all the time is revert to being that young major in 1917 winning his medal. He is at heart a frontline soldier. Uh, and the trouble is once you go up the chain of command, you assume more responsibilities. And one of those is you have to draw yourself away from the front and deal with all the other stuff that Rommel doesn't really like dealing with. So when I'm often asked, you know, how good a commander is he? I have to say, well, at what level are you asking that question? He's a tactical commander. Yeah, great. He's got this real instinct. But the higher he goes, the less good he becomes. It's a bit like Napoleon in a way. Um, you know, the, you know the, the fewer people you have, which is where you make your name, that, that's sort of relatively easy to get right. But as you go further up the chain of command, you have to adjust your mental thought processes, you need training as to how to handle bodies. Or if you don't, you, you rely on other people who do. And I'm not sure Rommel gets that right all the time. But it just does mean that the British are infinitely worse, if you like, um, in, in North Africa until the arrival of Bernard Montgomery, which happens in August 1942. Campaign over. He now ends up in Italy. How, how does that happen? 
So, of course, uh, Winston Churchill arrives in Cairo in August 1942, realising that there's something wrong with British generalship in that, that, you know, Rommel seems to be undefeatable and has this huge reputation that, that is a problem in itself, part of which is Churchill's own fault, having bigged up Rommel in the House of Commons. Anyway, the net result is uh, Bernard Montgomery, who's not first choice. There's another commander um, who uh, is appointed first. Um, William Gott, whose aircraft is assassinated, is uh, attacked uh, and effectively he's assassinated. So uh, Montgomery becomes the second choice commander of Eighth Army, backing of Churchill and his mate, um, uh, Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke, who's chief of the Imperial General Staff. Um, and Churchill... Uh, pushes Montgomery to attack early. Montgomery says, you know, I'm a, I'm a great trainer and my men need uh, a new mindset. And I'm going to tell them that they're a winning organisation uh, and we will beat Rommel. And essentially the Battle of El Alamein happens uh, in November. Uh, Rommel is pushed back. He runs out of resources. He's short of fuel. Uh, and this is where you know, inter-campaigns really matter at the high strategic level. So the supplies of of Spare men, spare tanks, spare ammunition, food, fuel particularly, that Rommel needs at this stage, so we're talking late 1941, are not going to him because they're going to Stalingrad. They're going to the Eastern Front. Um, and this is where the German war machine is overstretched, and it can only do one campaign really well. Uh, and of course, Stalingrad will take you into the Caucasus, which will take you to German uh, to Russian oil. And as the Germans have almost no oil resources themselves, except to Ploesti and uh, Romania, um, this becomes a strategic need. And Hitler gets you know, completely focused on, on the city that bears his opponent's name, Stalingrad. But Rommel now is playing the same card. And he says, OK, if you back me, I will cream through the British in Egypt and that will take me to the Middle East and that will produce oil as well. Now, if you look at history books, people sort of talk about a big double envelopment of Hitler going through Stalingrad to the Caucasus and North Africa to get to the Middle East. And this was always a German high command plan. Wrong. It wasn't. Hitler never thinks in that way. Uh, and the German general staff were never that ambitious. Um, it, it, it's because the Russians collapse so quickly that the Caucasus oil looks as though it starts to come into um, the possibility of being seized. And the moment Rommel hears that, realises that's where resources are going, he ups his game and says, right, we can take Egypt and I can get to the Middle East oil. I don't think that was ever a realistic pro uh, possibility, but that's the card he plays. But it doesn't work. Um, and essentially, from uh, November 1942 to May 1943 is the story of Rommel being pushed back in North Africa um, just after Alamein, the, the Allies land in Tunisia, Algeria, Algeria and Morocco uh, and attack the Eighth Army from the other end. And this is the first arrival of um, uh, Americans in the North African theatre. This is Tunisia, Kasserine Pass. And Rommel's army, the Africa Corps, is squeezed between the two. Montgomery's Eighth Army coming from the east. Um, Anderson's uh, First Army with a big American corps led by Bradley and Patton. Uh, coming from the West. Uh, and just before the end, just before this uh, German army is defeated and captured uh, in Tunis in, in May 1943, uh, Rommel is spirited out of, uh, of 
the, of North Africa by Hitler, who doesn't want his icon, uh, an emblem of achievement, to be captured. Um, but he doesn't know what to do with him. So Rommel ends up um, in northern Italy, uh, commanding something called Army Group B, which really doesn't exist. It's just a few people, a few staff officers uh, and a headquarters organization. Uh, and essentially, the feeling is that the, the Allies are going to invade southern Italy um, and Rommel might be the man to defend Italy. And what emerges is a power struggle uh, between Kesselring, who's been a minor Luftwaffe general, didn't, didn't shine terribly well in the Battle of Britain, um, but has actually become a theatre commander in uh, in Italy. Um, Kesselring, former Bavarian, uh, wasn't Air Corps originally, he was an artilleryman and un- understands how to use artillery in Italy, which is full of hills. Um, uh, and so Kesselring becomes the man of choice for Hitler to defend Italy. Army Group B, kicking its heels in northern Italy, is not used. Rommel is getting very dispirited. He's not having a field command. Uh, and all of a sudden, Hitler suddenly gets worried about an Allied invasion of northern France uh, in very late 1943 uh, and sends Rommel on a tour of inspection of Normandy and Brittany and, and France, Belgium, Holland, uh, that northern coast to just see whether the Allies would be able to um, invade uh, and uh, hurry on the end of the Second World War that way. And Rommel is simply the Inspector General of Defences of the northern part of the Reich. Our listeners and me, actually, very much so me, want to know this very, very important question about Rommel. Are you ready? I'm ready. Was Rommel involved in the Hitler plot? There are two ways of answering the question as to whether Rommel was involved in, in, in the Hitler plot. Um, and one is, uh, what is the archival documentary evidence? Um, uh, and there is nothing that says that he is specifically involved, however much the Germans tried to make him seem guilty and that was what the post-war world wanted Rommel to be, part of the plot. Um, that's how he was portrayed in um, uh, Desmond Young's first post-war biography, Rommel, the Desert Fox, the film that came out with James Mason shortly afterwards in the 1950s of the same name. Uh, and generally our view was that Rommel was part of the opposition to Hitler, and that makes him even more lovable. I have to say there's no documentary evidence that that was the case. Um uh, I think what had happened, and the other way of answering this question is on my gut instinct, which is not very professional as a historian, but here goes. Um, Rommel is not out of sympathy with, with, with Hitler. Rommel has ridden the tiger and it has given him field marshalship. It's given him a very good campaign that he would say he lost, but, but through no fault of his own. Um, uh, and uh, Rommel is very frustrated by being appointed as uh, the Army Group B commander, commanding two armies in, in Normandy and Brittany, and being unable to defeat the Allies landing in Normandy um, on D-Day and, and afterwards. Um, and he gets very frustrated because Hitler doesn't give him freedom of manoeuvre uh, and the initiative to make his own dispositions. 
uh, and he doesn't give him all the resources that, that, that Rommel feels he needs to, with which to to combat the um, the Allied landings. Um, so that result re- results in frustration, um, and Rommel sees Hitler a few times and says, "You know, look, we've got to look at this. You know, logically, we need to withdraw. We need to conserve our manpower um, and uh, you know prevail against the Allies by by." using ground intelligently and not committing resources to defending places that don't need to be defended. Of course, Hitler's mentality is no retreat. Uh, and Rommel keeps saying, come on, you've got to look at this strategically. We, we need to find a way of, of um, you know, negating the Allied inroads in the West because our, our main effort is in, is in the Eastern Front. And Hitler won't have any of it. So... Rommel is, is certainly dispirited by Hitler's um, mental approach and his strategy. And his last few messages to Hitler are, you know, consider the, the, the political situation. So that's where, that's where it stands. That doesn't amount to opposition to Hitler. Um, however, the July 20th plot um, kicks in. Um, a lot of the plotters are people who Rommel knows, but that doesn't mean they've approached him and said, do you want to be part of it? What's happened is the plotters amongst themselves have been very careless and, and, and amongst the debriefs um, of the, the plotters and the documents captured is a piece of paper which says, right, what are we going to do once Hitler's assassinated? We need a new German cabinet. We need new leaders for Germany. How about Rommel as head of the German army? Because everybody knows him and loves him. But Rommel hasn't been consulted. So straight away, people seize on this and think, crikey, you know, Rommel right at the top. But actually, he, I think he's, he's pretty innocent of all of that. Um, his mentor in the, the uh, interwar years was a Württemberg general who nurtured his career in the First World War and afterwards called von Hofacker. And von Hofacker's son, Cesar von Hofacker, is a uh, a lieutenant colonel in the Luftwaffe, and he's the liaison man for the plotters, and he's based in Paris. Now, he certainly does go to see Rommel, um, and I don't think he gives him anything specific at all. He just says, Phil Marshall, you know, how would you feel were things to suddenly change? Would you be up for um, helping a new regime you know, conduct the Second World War, but in perhaps a changed direction. There would have been a lot of euphemism. He wouldn't have laid his cards on the table um, because, you know, Rommel is associated as someone incredibly close to Hitler. Um, and Rommel probably, being ambitious, would have said, uh, well, I love you. I'm going to play my cards close to my chest. Um, but, you know, if the regime is going to change, I would quite like to be in, in, in a position of power rather than cast out. And most people would probably respond in that way. So he doesn't brush this guy away like a flea. He doesn't say, sign me up to the plot. I'm your man. He just says, well, yeah, keep me informed. Tell me, you know, just uh, I'm interested to, to, to know what's happening in the wider German army. But that was all. Um, and of course, fate intervenes because on the 17th of July, uh, Rommel is, is rushing around uh, Normandy in his staff car. It's bounced by Allied fighter bombers uh, and Rommel is very, very severely wounded. He's unconscious. He's close to death and he's carted off to a whole series of hospitals. So he is actually unconscious when the July 20th plot happens in the Wolf's Lair in East Prussia. 
um, when uh, Colonel von Stauffenberg accidentally on purpose leaves his briefcase under Hitler's table. Rommel has got nothing to do with it, doesn't know uh, about it beforehand. Um, there's nothing to suggest that he does. Uh, and he's not part of the plot that was then um, uh, scheduled to kick in uh, and take advantage of Hitler's death uh, and the chaos that ensues. But what would then have happened in all probability was the plotters were going to go to Rommel and say, right, we want you to be part of the new regime. And he was probably sounded out about that. But in the crazy world of the Third Reich, that is guilty knowledge. And that is enough to get you killed. And essentially, that's what happens. But if we tease the, if we tease the events out, essentially Rommel recovers from his, uh, his injury in Normandy on the 17th of July. Um, uh, he's in hospital. He, he, you know, complete bystander while all of this happens, takes no part in the plot. Um, makes no reaction, no comment to it. But his last few uh, messages and correspondence with Hitler have been a little bit ambiguous. He keeps saying, you know, remember the strategic situation. I don't think there's anything about uh, regime change in any of those. He's simply saying to Hitler, come on, you, you, your strategy of defending Normandy um, is a very costly way uh, and, and could win us, lose us the war in the West. Um, uh, I'm, I'm begging you to sort of reassess your own approach, but they don't part on the best of terms, uh, and that ten, that actually turns out to be the you know Rommel's last messages in correspondence with Hitler. So that's point one. Point two is that Hitler uh, and Rommel have been very close, and Rommel has um, sacrificed several friendships within the German army by being close to Hitler. Uh, he's you know, he's used the party machine. He's used uh, the fact that he was Hitler's bodyguard. He's used propaganda. And that's got him his field marshal's baton uh, and has made a lot of other generals jealous. So when the German army is asked to provide, if you like, character witnesses for Rommel, let's stand up and defend, you know, you Oh, German army, I want you to defend your best general because there were the nasty, scurrilous rumours he could have been associated with the July plotters. And indeed, you know, um, some of them were floating around his headquarters and so on. Um, no one speaks up in his defence. Um, and he's damned by the silence of the army. So they don't cast him out. They don't, uh, like other German uh, officers um, who are... Uh, cashiered from the German army, therefore they become civilians, therefore it's easier to um, uh, try them in the people's court and execute them by hanging. Um, whereas if you're a military man, you, you, you should have been shot by firing squad. That never happens, because I think there's a, there's a lingering regret of Hitler that his favourite general is somehow sullied uh, in his reputation. Um, the army haven't uh, cast him out um, because he has uh, been used by the German machine, by the army and the, the, the Nazis as this huge propaganda icon. And it's clearly really damaging. If you set this guy up as your heroes, the people's heroes, the people's general, and he, that's what he very much is. And you then have to topple him because that doesn't say a lot about the judgment of Goebbels or Hitler. So Rommel is clearly a special case. Uh, and the, you know, the, the compromise that, that they come up with is, is two German generals go to Rommel and say, look, you know, this is terribly bad business. Um, you are a very bad boy. Uh, we won't 
court martial you, we won't take you to the people's court, um, but here's a little black capsule. Um, the choice is yours. Um, you will be found guilty if you stay alive, um, but you could end it now, uh, and we will say that you've died of wounds on the battlefield, uh, and uh, your wife will get her pension, and you will still be lauded as, as our finest general. Uh, and he, you know, really caught between a rock and a hard place. And I doubt, you know, many of us caught in that situation would take the option of, you know, risking your your name, your reputation, your family, um, or taking the poison. And he takes the poison. Uh, and so poor old Rommel dies in, in October 1944, killed by the regime, killed by the tiger that allows him to ride it and uh, you know, really uses him uh, as a pawn in creating this myth of German in invincibility. But it then turns around and bites him and kills him when he's no longer of any use. Uh, and that's the end uh, uh, of Rommel. But the Germans keep that whole business of how he's killed secret. And it doesn't really start to leak out until 10 years after the Second World War um, in books and films. And then we have the convenient fiction that Rommel is on the side of the plotters because it becomes binary. It becomes black and white. Is Rommel a good guy or a bad guy? And the German army... Uh, 1955, Germany joins NATO. Um, it has to have a defence force to, to add to NATO. All those soldiers are going to be former Wehrmacht officers. Um, uh, the man in the ring is, is um, Rommel's own former chief of staff, Hans Speidel, who becomes a senior German, uh, senior NATO officer. So the German army needs someone good to say, we weren't all bad. We weren't all massacring bastards. Uh, and so Rommel is presented, especially as he dies a, as a result of the July plot. And it's then easy to fudge the history and say, well, he was always anti-Hitler. He was part of the plot because it killed him. And the fact that, you know, the plot killed him doesn't make him part of the plot. Those are two separate instances that become intertwined. And that's why popular history and myth has it. That Rommel was part of the plot. And that's why he died. He, he wasn't. He's collateral damage. And that makes it all the more sadder. But it also obscures the fact that he used the Nazi party and they used him to get him to where he eventually, uh, the heights he reached. And that's the enigma of Rommel. It's not, he's not a black and white individual. He's huge, variegated shades of grey. And there's, there's lots that's you know, unpleasant. He kills a, a, a uh, French Lieutenant Colonel in 1940, he's a war criminal, he uses the Nazi machine, he signs up to its values. But on the other hand, uh, it kills him. And that's what makes him so complex and so fascinating to study. So I've got a question. This is regarding your book, because for those who don't know, Peter's written a book um, on Monty and Rommel, Parallel Lives. If you haven't got it, go and grab yourselves a copy. Talking about your book, who would you prefer more as a commander? Because you've looked at Rommel and you've looked at Monty and you can only choose one. Who would it be? Okay. So, so it, 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 it goes back to the point at which level uh, are, are you looking at the two? And, and um, Rommel, I would argue is good as a, a battalion commander, as a brigade commander, as a divisional commander. After that, he sort of loses his way. His, his touch is less sure. Um, and, um, 
So we would say that he's probably a good tactical commander, inspiring. You'd love to be under his command. Uh, and the further up the chain of command he gets at uh, operational level, he's not so good. Um, if we look at Montgomery, he's a great trainer of men, but he's not got that charisma and that spark and that inspiration that Rommel brings to his men. The two are actually very different and it's difficult um, to sort of um, give them sort of uh, to compare them because you're really comparing apples and pears. They're not not quite the same. Um, but, you know, we want I think all of us want to be led by a Rommel or a Patton, someone who suddenly appears on the battlefield, galvanizes men into action, knows the buttons to press to get results. Um, but. The closer you are to them and the more you study the way they work, they're, you know, they're, um, you know, they're motivated by strange things. They're very, very uh, narrow minded. They, they don't get strategy. They don't get empathy with uh, a lot of other people around them. They're very good at, uh, at using media to uh, promote themselves. Um, and in the short term, that's great because it gets results. It gets the men responding. It gets the media responding. Uh, and you generate a lot of sort of sympathy towards what you're, what you're, you're trying to do. Um, so which one would I like to be commanded by? Uh, would I like, I've thrown Patton into the mix as well, but would I like to be commanded by uh, Montgomery? I looked at him very closely. Um, and, and all his contemporaries really find him objectionable. Um, and those who don't know him, the vast majority of the soldiery, um, find him absolutely wonderful. I think I would, you know, I'm curious. Uh, I'm an intellectual, um, but I'm also I've also served as an officer. I'd love to have been on a, 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 on a staff, but I'm not sure I want to be close to Montgomery. Would I would I have liked to have served under Rommel? Yes, but of course you have to remember that these inspiring generals are brutally uh, responsive to what they're told to do as well. Rommel gambled with people's lives. Um, he wasted men's. Uh, he wasted military units partly because he was told to by Hitler. Um, so your chances of survival under Rommel are much less than they are under Montgomery. And Montgomery is you know, affected by the First World War uh, and comes up with this mantra, this coda of metal, not flesh. Use technology, tanks and particularly artillery uh, to prepare and shape the battlefield rather than manpower because he's seen the Somme, he's seen um, Passchendaele and he doesn't want to go down in history as the general who sort of repeats that. Rommel is different um, and his First World was all, all First World War was all about using small numbers of people and having big effects. Uh, so um, I like the idea of being inspired by a charismatic dashing figure, the Rommel. Um, my life expectancy is going to be much less under him than it is under his, his opposite number, Bernard Montgomery, who, whose very methodology was all about caution and saving people's lives because he doesn't want the bad reputation that, that Douglas Haig gained um, after the First World War in the eyes of politicians uh, and some of the media. Um, so it's a toss-up. And I think probably a lot of us love a charismatic figure. Um, and Bernard Montgomery actually tried to be that, hence his, uh, his berry with two badges, and so on. That's an absolute response to Rommel. Uh, and Montgomery's one of his ADCs 
the head of the British Army Film and Photographic Unit and the editor of the Eighth Army News, the troops newspaper, came together at one stage, went to Montgomery and said, look, um, we need you to counter the Rommel image and you've got to do it sartorially as well. Um, and the first idea they came up with was him wearing an Australian digger slouch hat uh, festooned with all the badges of the, the regiments he commanded. And it didn't look very good. Um, and the second um, idea they came up with was was the beret. And that's where it comes from. It's deliberately designed to counter Rommel in his great coat and his scarf and his cap and his goggles. Um because it's imagery. Soldiers are so distant from commanders. They have to have something to latch on to, um, something to remember of, of the visits uh, of the general of the commander by. But I think, although you know, it's a tough call, um, I, I certainly would, as a soldier, have appreciated seeing Rommel in action Um because he, you know, there's so much myth associated to him. Um, but that's purely in military terms, free from politics. Um, and that's not to say I wouldn't have also appreciated seeing uh, Montgomery in action as well. And, and in fact, uh, Montgomery's father was a, a bishop and he knew my grandfather who was a bishop as well. So I have personal family anecdotes of, of just how tricky and difficult uh, Montgomery was. I think um, uh, Rommel would have been a, a, a more interesting person to have been around, um, both iconic and inspirational on a battlefield. And just to be close, he, he I mean, he's fairly frugal, but he, he did so much and he reacted on gut instinct. I'm not sure I'd like to be right at the end of the result of Rommel's train of thoughts, but I think being close to him and watching the way he commanded um, a, a campaign or a battle would have been absolutely fascinating. Does that answer your question? It does. Peter, listen, before we finish, can you remind our listeners the name of your book and where they can get it? Yeah, so um, the book is Monty and Rommel, Parallel Lives. And I write it very much as as one chapter on, on each as I go through the decades of their life. So there's a comparison all the way through. And at the back, there's, there's a little um, chronology uh, of what each is doing in, in, in every particular month. Um, and in hardback, uh, it's in, it came out under a preface, which is part of Random House. And in paperback, it's available uh, as Arrow. Uh, and uh, it's also available in the States, uh, and it's available in Spanish for Spanish speakers as well. So um, it's a widespread around the world. Um, it's been out now for 10 years, but it's been re reprinted several times. So it still continues to do really well. And I do hope that you might like to pick it up um, and enjoy reading it. Join us tomorrow when Historyland's Josh Proven will be back, this time to talk to us all about Egypt's first black pharaoh. So don't miss out on that one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join us on either of those platforms. Uh, Marcus is currently working on some benefits for you. So uh, 
There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.